12, if you will. And uh, we are going to begin this morning the fourth and final section of the book of Romans. And that is chapters 12 through 16. And we're going to introduce the section this morning and then get into verse number one in that introduction. And again, we come to probably the section that everybody wants to get into when, once they get saved. <laughs> you get saved, and then it's like, okay, preacher, what can I do? Where, you know, blah, And then they go run right to 12.1, and they read it, and they go, whoa, look at that, great, my reasonable service, and off they run. And it's like, whoa, slow down, hold your horses a minute here. Because chapter 12, verse 1, let's just read it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we come to this fourth and final section. And the section fits at really, it fits at the end of chapter 11 uh, on purpose. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And what we have, those four pillars, the first five chapters, that issue of justification, the mechanics of it, how, really, the whole book of Romans, that foundation that is to be laid, is really the mechanics of the grace life how the grace life is designed to work. I'm, I'm right now, I'm working on a little three-ring binder, little booklet idea for um, us here to have and about the grace life. And it'll have different sections. And then, you know how we have those, the little, the handout, the Today Reference? I got a little three-ring hole punch. I found it, so I bought it at Office Max because nowadays you never know. There today, gone tomorrow, never to be seen again, you know? We've been ordering some stuff for the kids. We have a cabinet. We've ordered three of them. One came, right. Then was like, okay, well, we need another one. So I went and ordered another one. It came, wrong color and broken. So we send it back. So Linda ordered another one. It got broke somewhere because they canceled that order to refund the money. So, you know, well, what's going on? Well, it's just called life. That's what's going on, okay? So anyway... In the grace life, you have the, this, this here, here it is. First of all, you got the mechanics of justification, the first five chapters. How it is, what it is, who is involved. And we, looked, we saw the book of Romans is as a courtroom where Paul, the prosecutor, and, and God, through Paul, the prosecutor, laying out the case against man, period, humanity. And he lays it out and he nails man. And he, they're sinners, they're sinners, they're sinners. And yet the father said what? The judge says, here's my son. He will take that payment for man. And he does that. When you trust him, therefore being justified, we have peace with God. Now we have an identity. And in chapter 6, 7, and 8, we learn the mechanics of that identification or, or sanctification, it gets called. Our who are we? And if you, you know, you understand your, uh, your, we uh, for all uh, fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all fall short. We understand that. But because we're in Christ, we have his 
this new identity, okay? So how does that work? What's it look like? What, how's it developed? Then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we just came through that. By the way, this is our 125th lesson in Romans, okay? We've been at it a couple years, all right? And by the way, we got about another hundy to go. I don't think so, but we'll, you, you never know. Okay, but the thing is, is what happens is, is in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we slowed way down on, and on purpose because those chapters deal with our place in history, the dispensational setting of the but now, today, as it relates to the nation of Israel, but also as it relates to the Gentiles in the program of God has uh, for reconciling the world and reconciling, creating and forming the church, the body of Christ, to then go and reconcile the heavenly places. And that, that relationship with Israel now between God and Israel is one of castaway. It's one of fallen. It's one of dead not the individual Jew, that's what 11 is, does. Paul says, hey, he's not against the Jew. Why? Because the Jew and the Gentile make up the body of Christ. Individually, now all men can come to Christ without having to go through the nation of Israel. So nationally, what's happened? And we, we look down through it, in that, and the fact is now that Israel has fallen, they're dead they're cast away. They're lost their favored status with God. God is now free to go over here to the Gentiles and offer and grant an access to them. And that's that issue of the olive tree and being grafted in and out. It, it has to do with access to God. And we looked at that and we, we spent some time there. Now in 12 to 16, here's the application of all that. Here is... We take all of that doctrine of chapter one, verse uh, chapters one through eleven, and here's how does it look as we apply all the doctrine we've learned. How does it look like? What does it look like in life if we are justified and we ha understand who we are in Christ? We we understand our identity. We understand our place in history. When we get all of that information. Now, in 12 to 16, Paul comes in and says, here's what it looks like in your life. And here's what God is imploring you to do and to behave and to live and to act. And to act. He calls it in verse 1, your reasonable service. That's what he calls it. I, again, I love that reasonable God is not unreasonable. He looks at Israel and says, hey, come, let's reason together. Let's come and let's talk. God is a, he's a gentleman. <laughs> he, he, he's a loving God. He's, but by the way, he's also a just God. And if you offend his justice, he's going to do what with you? He's going to nail you. He's going to execute the sentence swiftly. But yet at the same time, what is he? He's a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. He's a, he's a righteous. And he says, I, let's come and let's reason. Let's look at this and let's figure this out and how it looks in your life. So this fourth section does have a, an outline to it. It does have 
a, a, an order to it. It has a design to it. So as we begin to get into this issue here, verse 1 and 2 really set the parameter. They really set the whole situation here. And, and again, how are you going to respond to the circumstances of life in light of being justified, who you are in Christ, and where we're at in history? You know, it's always an interesting thing if you ever hear anyone ever say Hitler was the Antichrist. You know what you can say? No, he wasn't. Why? Because when did Hitler walk the earth? Now, Hitler's a wicked man, don't get me wrong. But when did he walk the earth? During which dispensation? Dispensation of grace. See, that's, so he, now, could he have been the Antichrist? Well, we can play the what if game all day long, but what would that have to require God to do? in the dispensation of grace and resume Israel's program, which is what we came out of chapter 11 with, with Paul saying, look, the blindness in part is temporary. This is temporary. Now he will one day finish the, there. If you look back up at 1129, uh, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. The covenant relationship that God has with the nation of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the, the new covenant, those covenant relationships that he had with Israel in, and he made with Abraham, he makes with Moses, he makes with David. Those, those covenants, he doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say, okay, now it's going to be the Gentiles that are going to do that. He doesn't say it's going to be the church. No, it's going to be who? The nation of Israel. That's who it's going to be. How do we then respond? Having all of this doctrine, all of this in our minds, which I hope it's in your minds, you know, 9, 10, and 11 ought to tell you something real simple. You're not Israel. You're who? You're a Gentile, and if you're in Christ, you're a member of the body of Christ. You're not a believing remnant member. You don't belong over here in Israel. You belong right here where we're at. So when we start here, in the opening verses, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And that's going to be the issue in the section. The issue in the section is our reasonable service. And it's going to really, there's six main areas here of our reasonable service. And again, I would stress it, it is not unreasonable. It's comprehensible. Ephesians 3.16, we're able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of God. We can understand this. The first area is these first two verses, our reasonable service to God. This is the foundation. How do we how, what, that relationship that we have with God, how, how are we to have a service to God? Then in verse 3 to 16, we have our reasonable service to the body, big B, capital B, the body of Christ. How do we serve one another? How do we lay that out to each other? How do we interact with each other? And then in verse 17 through 21, our service our reasonable service to the unsaved. How, 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 what does the unsaved world out there need? 
they don't need you to be their enemy. You see, that ought to adjust your thinking about how you think about the unsaved. What do they need to hear? They need to hear that Christ died for their sins, was buried, rose again the third day. That's what they need to hear. They don't need to hear your political stance. They don't need to hear your economic stance. They don't need to hear that. What do they need to hear? That Christ died for their sins and was buried and rose again the third day. Why? You do that, that's your reasonable, that's your serving the, the lost. That's all it is. Now, you have your political and economical and social stuff. I get that. But that's not what the lost need to hear. What do they need to hear? Christ died for their sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. Okay? Then in chapter 13, we begin our reasonable service under human government in verses 1 to 7. And this is probably one of the most emotional-based sections in all of this because it's dealing with what? Politics. And everybody's got a politics. And you know what Paul's going to do? He's going to make it an issue of your inner man. That's the issue. And he's going to bring it in. So how do we serve the politician, the political entity? How do we interact with that? Because we interact with it. The governmental structure is ordained by God. Not the men in it, not the people in it, but the structure, the power structure. And we'll see that as we go. Then in verse 8 to 13, chapter 13, verse 8 to 14, we see our reasonable service in the world. That's going to be the social, the cultural interaction that we have. Because when we have an interaction in the culture, Abortion's bad, isn't it? It's murder. It's what it is. How do you deal with that? How do you interact with that? How do you talk about that? How do you... Now, he's not talking about protesting downtown, okay? People with a lot more money are able to do that. But he's talking about how you're going to interact with that. Because I'll be honest with you, things in our culture, things in our society, they seep into our family lives. So where, do I, where am I going to deal with culture? In my family life, aren't I? We all have relationships that you look at them and you go, oh my goodness, what truck did they fall off of? And they're a brother or a sister, an aunt or an uncle, a cousin or a ne- you, know, you go, holy cow, where did you come from? I have, a, I have a cousin right now. She went to a liberal arts school and she's as liberal as liberal can be. And you know what? She was never that, she doesn't come from that kind of a home at all, my uncle's home. And yet, what is, she learned some things, and poo, she's over there, you know. And I'm like, it's a good thing you live on the East Coast, you know. And Facebook, snoozer for a while, you know. Why? Because, so how do you interact with, how do you deal, what's your reasonable service in the world? Again, what does the world need to see? They need to see an outbreak, an outbreak of the righteous character of the Lord Jesus Christ here on planet Earth in your life. How do I do that? Based on the doctrine of chapters 1 through 11. Working in my life. You follow that? Then he comes to probably the biggest section. And that's chapter 14, 1 through chapter 15, verse 7. And that is the area that a lot of us struggle in, quite honestly, And a lot of us have to continue to keep on 
edge, and that's our service to the weaker brother. Someone who isn't quite up with where you're at. We all sit at different maturity levels of understanding. So how do we deal with it? It's the largest section because it's probably one of the largest groups you're going to run into. Because, again, politics and family and, I'm sorry, social, the world, that, that hits your family. That's a pretty knit little group. But the weaker brother, now we're in that local assembly. By the way, it is in this section that we see mentioned for the first time the doctrine of the judgment seat of Christ. And it's in connection with not you and your sins or any of that. It's in connection with your interaction and activity with the weaker brother. It's very fascinating. A lot of people have some weird ideas about the judgment seat. We'll get into that when we get there. Then the, the, the seventh section then is really the, just the concluding information, and that starts in 15.8 and goes down through chapter 16, verse 27. And in that section, we see Christ's earthly ministry, 15.8 to 12. Then we see Paul's present ministry, chapter 15, verse 13 to 33. Then we see Paul's warnings, I'm sorry, Paul's love, six, chapter 16, 1 to 16. Then we see his warning, 16, 17 to 20. That's the mark and avoid passage. Okay? Then we see Paul's salutations in verse 21 to 24. And then we see his commendation in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 25 to 27. All of that is how this section breaks out. And we're going to get done with it next week. <laughs> Not really, okay? I, again, I, I, I've all, it's always fascinating to me. I get emails from uh, different publications, and they have, uh, through Paul's epistles in a month. Like, how in the world do you do that? You know, but they, they, I, I'm tempted to give them my money to see what it looks like, but I just can't do it. You know, I just, you know they want 52 lessons for the year. So that means I can go do nothing for, you know, 50, you know, but they, you know, they always want like three or four or five hundred dollars. And it's like, ah, I just don't think I can do that. I'm itching to know what it looks like, though. But anyway, chapter 12, verse one, it all begins right here in 12, one. And I just want to spend this week, next week and the coming weeks looking at these and hopefully try to look at them in sections. We'll see how it plays out. But it starts in 12.1 with the first word, I. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. I, Paul, very intimate, a very tender moment here. If you come back with me to chapter 8, chapter 8, what usually happens is people will grab the end of 8, skip 9, 10, and 11 chapters and go right to 12, 1, and they skip it because they don't want to deal with the grafting in, grafting out stuff, which we dealt with. They don't want to deal with what's going on with Israel because if you teach and preach chapters 9, 10, and 11, it, make, it sounds like you're being an anti-Semitic. You're against Israel, but you're not in the details, but people don't hear out everything. They hear the first 10 minutes and then turn you off. I was looking at our YouTube stats and analytics, and 
the I, something I thought I saw it. Maybe I might have it wrong, but it was like less than 10 minutes. Does anyone watch any video? So in the first 10 minutes, you know what you got to do? You got to get them. You got to grab them. Because after 10 minutes, what do they usually do? It's exactly. Boom. Otherwise, they're gone. They, they'll, they'll switch. Okay? That's why I was told I should, my messages should be 10 minutes. <laughs> and I'm like, that ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. You know? But uh, anyway. So I try to load everything up in the first 10, and then we'll work it all out in the, the, the next 50. Okay? Or 40. All right, 12, uh, the end of chapter 8. Notice how the end of chapter 8 ends. By the way, each section ends with a reach into the next section. He says, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for thy sake are we are killed all the day long. We are counted as, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us, right? 12.1. I therefore beseech you, brother. See how the, it's just a natural pull there. But you can't lose 9, 10, and 11 because what happens, what did we learn in chapter 11? What's our tendency to say? Well, Israel dropped the ball, so God picked the Gentiles to carry the ball, so we're all carrying the same bucket of information. And that's just not the case. But notice 12.1. It begins in a very tender way here. I, here's Paul. Oh, by the way, here's God Almighty, too. Through our apostle, here he is. Here's Paul, our apostle. Here's God, the one who blesses the saints at Rome, who gives all spiritual blessings and so forth. And Paul, again, here, he's going to, I, what, beseech you. I beseech you, therefore. That's Paul's manner. It's a wonderful thing to, to notice how Paul does ministry. Uh, come back, come over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, his, his approach to ministry was never to lord it over anyone. It, was, it is never to, to say, you better do this or else, okay? Rather, his approach is really 2 Corinthians 1 verse 24. Not for that we have dominion over your faith. See, the issue of dominion. But rather are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. That verse became very real to me early in public ministry, but also early and I mean, I grew up in the ministry uh, with Dad and everything there at Shorewood, but then here over the last 25 years here, 24 years here, but see, the thing is, is, hey, what's the goal here? What does Paul say? He says, I, what? I beseech you. I, I'm, as we begin the fourth section, and come back to 12.1, Paul's manner was never to, he wasn't to have dominion over. It, you know, I have a hard enough time handling my own life. Why in the world would I want to run your life? See, 
Rather, what does Paul say? Get the doctrine. Let the doctrine run your life. And if the doctrine runs your life, uh, are you still in 2 Corinthians? Look at chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. You see, when, years ago, well, I say years ago, it's 20 years ago now, I went to a seminar on church marketing. It was held over here by the airport. So I went, and uh, I didn't spend any money, so I came home okay. <laughs> but I go to the, and they're talking about how to market the local church to get more people to come in and do this and do that. And I was sitting there listening to them, and this verse came to mind, 2 Corinthians 4, verse number 2. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God, how? Deceitfully. But, what should we be doing? What is the ministry? By manifestation of the truth. What are we to be manifesting? The truth. Not over here through a, something slippery. Because what is the truth going to do? It's going to commend ourselves to every man of conscience in the sight of God. You see, when you listen to people talk, teachers teach, and they're not commending the truth, what are you going to do? What's the truth going to cause you to do? Not be there very long. If you're after what? The truth. See, If you're there to be entertained, you'll be entertained. But what are you after? What does Paul say? I beseech you, therefore, as we begin the fourth section here, Paul is going to do something very unique to him in his ministry, very unique to what we do here in our ministry. And that is, he's not going to have a dominion over you. He's rather going to release the believer to an independent exercise of their free will, will, to what? Obey the doctrine. Not have a dominion. If I stood here and said, you better stop at McDonald's every Sunday morning and get a cup of coffee, and I want to see your receipt, the room would be empty, because who likes McDonald coffee? Well, I do. <laughs> okay. But what would that do? It would put a what? It would put, a, 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 an, un, it would put an intensity in the room, a stressor in the room that doesn't need to be there. Shouldn't be there. Unreasonable, exactly. By the way, you ought to have some McDonald coffee. It's pretty good, okay? And if you don't believe me, try the Keurig next door. We got the little K-cups, pretty close. But what's Paul going to do? Paul's releasing us to the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. What did we just learn? We just learned about our justification, our identity, and our place in history and where we're at. Let's take all that now as we go and do what? Interact with life. How do we do that? What's it to look like? So rather, come back to Romans 12 there. So rather than having dominion, rather than using trickery, Rather than reaching in here and using a cunning craftiness to get you to do something. I, I honestly, I, the, I think one of the most dastardly things we could ever do is hide who we are. By, by not saying who we are. 
one of the marketing tools that was talked about was changing the name of your church. Because if I said, we're the First Baptist Church of Tempe, did you hear the word Baptist? What, when every one of you had a preconceived idea. But there's a whole bunch of different Baptists, didn't, isn't there? There's the Southern Baptist, the American Baptist, the Independence, the Free Will. You know, you got, you know. So, by the way, over here, we got a little church over here on 13th and Mill. Three little letters sit underneath their name, SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. You know why? It's three little letters. You know why Harvest and all those guys change their names about every couple years? Because people get preconceived ideas, and guess what they won't do? They won't come. So what are our names? Southwest, that's because we live where? In the Southwest. I would, have, I would have loved the name to have been Southwest Bible Church, but, that, but there's, a, there's a Southwest Bible Church radio out of Texas, and the state said it's too close, so we can't do that. So I did fellowship. But what's the middle name? Bible. Why? Because we're about the Bible. Do you know why King James Bible is all over our website? Because that's who we are. And if someone comes in, I want them to know ahead of time, if they've looked at the website, what we're about. I don't want there to be a, well, you never told me, and a trickery. Let's be up front. I talked to a gentleman years ago down in the Tucson area, and he was telling me that he, uh, I was looking for some help for some winter visitors, and he said every, all the grace ministries down there had basically gone away, and I said, well, we, well, let's get one started. And he's like, well, I'm over here teaching at a little Acts 2 church. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why are you teaching at an Acts 2 church when you're an Acts 9er? He's like, well, they don't hold me back and I can teach whatever I want. And I said, do they know your position? He goes, no, not yet. And I just went, oh. They should have known up front his position. By the way, they wouldn't have asked him to teach. But he's looking for that, and that's what he did. And I just, what is that verse? Hey, we don't do, the, we do what? We commend the truth to every man's conscience. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore. I'm doing, Paul's doing the same thing. I want the doctrine to be the issue here. I'm releasing you. I, Paul, uh, the apostle of the Gentiles. I, God Almighty, the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are releasing you to your own free will, your own volition, to purposefully, deliberately, willfully choose the best course of action for your life, but based upon your understanding of what? The doctrine. That's why, if you look at 13.1, 13.1, about the human government, let every what? Soul. That's an inner man issue. That's why this is an inner man thing. Because you choose in your soul, your heart, your will to do what? How am I going to behave? We're not going to use a guilt trip to motivate you. Paul doesn't use shame and intimidation to motivate. He says, you know what? The doctrine that you just learned in chapters 1 through 11 ought to be enough to motivate you to go live as who you are in Christ, to go and 
do your reasonable service. So when he says I, he's releasing the saint to service. He says, you got all this information, you got all this doctrine. Sometimes it feels like we were swimming in it. Now I'm, go use it. Go live it. I beseech you. Beseechment. An old dictionary. It's got to be because it's, it's written down in my notes here, so it's got to be old, you know, because I'm old now. I got this Bible in 1988 <laughs> as I was going off to college. And I'm like, I'm old. So I was sitting there in the car, and I said, okay, old man, let's get going. And Linda goes, which one? Because there was a guy in front of me that was an old man. And I go, hey, calm down now, you know. He says what? I beseech you. Beseechment has to do with strongly seeking something from someone. The definition in the dictionary is to kindly but forcefully implore. No command to do. Paul is not making any demands here. Rather, he's going to do what? Beseech you. He's going to implore. He's going to kindly Come over to 2 Corinthians 10. He's going to kindly but strongly, forcefully implore you to live your life this way. Here's your reasonable service. By the way, I hope you noticed that in that list of this section, there's nothing in there about feeding the poor or what is called social justice or the social gospel, I'm sorry, which is social justice just with the religious term put on it. None of that. Now, should we feed the poor and take care of the poor? Sure. But after what? After the doctrine has motivated us to go do that. Follow that? What does the, what does the lost need? They need to hear the gospel. So in the section there in chapter 12 where I'm my reasonable service to the unsaved world, if I'm doing that, then it may lead me to do what? Open up a food line. You follow that? Form follows the function. Let's get the function rolling first. That's what Paul's beseeching. He's not commanding. He's beseeching. 2 Corinthians 10. Look at verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you. See that Paul, myself. He's not calling on anyone else. I beseech you, now notice, by the meekness and gentleness of who? Of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. Notice Paul. Why is he beseeching? He, what's he doing? He's beseeching them. As the apostle of the Gentiles, he's going to forcefully but kindly, graciously implore the saints here at Corinth, you and I here, those at Rome, those throughout the church, the body of Christ, to come along and to participate in the edification process. He's releasing the believer to our own growth and our own edification. That's what he's doing. And he says, I beseech you. How? By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 
by the meekness. Think about meekness. You know, meekness is not laying out what you deserve. It's holding, it's, meekness means that if, if, if you're going to retard the meekness slow, and you're going you're gonna to use meekness, you're going to restrain power and authority. Who is Paul? He's the apostle of, of the Gentiles. He is the authority in human, human, in human skin. He's the guy. He's our pattern. He's the one we mark and follow as an example. He's the one that we look to and say, here's what he is. He's the one that says in 2 Corinthians 1, I'm the example in suffering. and ter-. He's our guy. He's the illustration. And yet what does he say? I'm refraining from that power. Remember when he says I, to the Corinthians, I could have came in there and demanded but I didn't want the gospel to be chargeable. He says it to the Thessalonians too. So instead I went and worked and did a job and paid my own way so that what the gospel would have free course. You see, Paul here, he's challenging. We are being challenged to willingly, willfully, deliberately choose a course of action whereby we present our bodies. Back in 12.1. We're not doing it out of fear. We're not doing it out of guilt. We're not doing it out of a law motivation, a compulsion to do. But rather, we're doing it by what? The meekness and gentleness of Christ. You think about the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and authority. (laughs) And we look at... Philippians 2 there, and what did he do with that power and authority? He said, I got it, but I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go do the will of the Father now. I'm going to come over here and do what the plan, the purpose required. Can Christ make a demand on you? Sure he can. He's Christ. He's the Son of the living God. He could command. He could demand. He could come in and say, do this or else. By the way, do you remember a group of people he did that to? Israel, the thou shalt nots. He could very easily, and by the way, how'd that go for him? (laughs) Not very good. He could have easily came in, but he doesn't. He comes in, and by meekness, and by gentleness, because That's the only acceptable motivation that he's going to allow to be the issue. The only acceptable motivation, the only thing he will ever accept is your response of love and gratitude. Your free will, your deliberateness to say, I'm going to do what the, ver- the truth tells me, and I'm going to come over here and I'm going to work it out in my life the way it looks in my life. Now I, Paul, myself, what? Beseech you. I kindly, yet forcefully, implore you to do this. Come over to Philemon. Chapter 8. 
chapter 8, verse 8. It's only one book. You know the story of Philemon? What's happening here? Onesimus has come back. So what does Paul say? Verse 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. You see, Paul's, I could command you to do this, Philemon. Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. For love, Philemon, I know that, verse 6, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ. Philemon, I know the doctrines working in you so much that you have a love toward the Lord, the end of verse 5, and all the saints, and you'll take, you've been taking care of business. I've heard the reports. I know you personally. So based on love's sake, you know what I'm asking you to do with Onesimus? Take him back. And let's work through the divide. I beseech you. I'm not commanding you. Come back with me to 2 Corinthians 5. I'm not, I'm not requiring this. I, I endure thee. I, based, by the way, Paul and Philemon, you know how Paul looked at Philemon? He looked at it as equals. That's how he looked at Philemon. He didn't look at Philemon. He says, he, didn't, he goes, I could command it, but that's not what the doctrine says. The doctrine says, for love's sake, let's do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, it's in the meekness, in the gentleness, that he, he wants, he beseeches you. I want a tender heart here. I want a tender-hearted response not a response based on fear and guilt and shame and the issues of the law, the legalism, but rather I want a response based on love, gratitude, thanksgiving. That's what I want. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constrains. Here's the motivation. By the way, no other response is acceptable under grace. If you respond anywhere outside of, the, of, of what the beseechment is, then it's a response of your own, the energy of your own flesh. In Romans 4, Abraham learned that nothing good comes out of your flesh. He learned that. So have we, haven't we? What, think about Romans 6, 7, and 8. What do we learn about this old stinking mess? It's what? It's dead. It's been freed. It's to be usable now. The motivation, the response, the relationship that we're to have isn't the one we're, we're trying to do to accomplish and to get and to gain, but rather it's a constrainment. You know, God, uh, God looked at Israel, again, this is my little paraphrase. He goes, I don't want your stinking sacrifices. I want your heart. That's what I was after, is your heart. You know what God wants of you? 
He wants your heart. He wants your minds. He wants you. So the love of Christ does what? It constrains us. Come, hold on to 2 Corinthians 5. Come back to 2 Corinthians 1. Look at this word constrained. That word constrained, it, it, it has a meaning of to press. In verse 8, he says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength and so much. You see that word pressed? That's the issue of constrained. So in 2 Corinthians 5.14, when he says the love of Christ constrains us, what does it do? It comes up and it presses on us the issues of who we are in Christ. The love of Christ, the love of God, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. There's the love of God. We have peace with God. We have the love of Christ in our identity. We're dead to sin and alive to God. We're dead to the law and alive in Christ. We're dead to the flesh and we're alive in him. He's become our He comes and he constrains us. He grips us. The love of Christ, that issue of love there, is an intelligent understanding. That issue in Philippians 1, that your love may abound yet more and more in what? Knowledge and in judgment and be able to discern the things that are greater and better. You see, it's not a mushy-feely, woo-hoo, you know. It's a mental, it's an attitude, it's an intelligent, willful choice to place value and worth and honor to someone who is worthy of it. And that's the relationship that God wants us to have, a love-motivated relationship that comes from an act of our will, not a fear, not of, oh, my goodness, if I do this, he'll be so disappointed. Do you know that the Father is never disappointed in you? Because when he sees you, who does he see you equal with? His son. You remember that, right? Are you sure? you got to catch this as we do this. Come back to Romans 12. Actually, go over to Romans 8, just, just to remind ourselves of this. Because as we begin, and that's all we're doing this morning is just introducing this here. And as we begin to, to get going here, we can't carry out our reasonable service until we're established in what this beseeching is and the motivation behind it. Look in chapter 8. Look at 8. In chapter 8, we find out here that we're dead to the flesh, but we're alive to God, alive to Christ. And then we begin in verse 14, find out that we you know what we are. We're sons of God. We're adults in the family of God. When God created creation, he created it with the intent of sons running it, adults running it. So what does he make you? An adult. That's that issue of adoption. Verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now watch. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we, who's the we? 
you and I. Church, the body of Christ. The Rome, the saints at Rome. Right? What do we cry? Abba, Father. Whoa, wait a minute. Who else cried Abba, Father? Only, other, only one other man. The man, Christ Jesus, did. As he was on his way to Calvary. And he was going through those events there. What does he cry? He cries, Abba, what do we cry? Same thing. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is our brother. He's family. I beseech you in the meekness and gentleness of your brother, Christ. Now, he's God. I'm not, okay, we're not, never taking away from who he is. But in the eyes of the Father, what can we cry? Abba, Father, we can cry the same. We have been given the same position, the same status as the Son of God has. Because where are we? We're in Him. Do you see, when we went through that stuff, I tried to stress it. It's like, it's like pulling teeth with you. Why? Because that's where we're at. When we cry, we're, so we're never, we're never destroyed. We're what? We're always victorious because of our co-identity with him. He, we choose to worship him. Why? He's worthy of that worship. He's worthy of that honor. He's worthy of me looking at my life and saying, you know what? These areas of my life are not in line with the doctrine that I've been learning, and I need to move them there, and then I need to move that. And I'm moving it there not to get, because I already have, but rather, Paul says it there in Philippians, I want to know him more. You follow? I didn't lose you, did I? I hope I didn't. Okay, You see, we have the same relationship with the Father that the Son has. We, by the way, Abba Father is the language of an adoptive son. That's what the, that's what the Son will cry. That intelligent response to the will of the Father, based on knowledge and understanding of what the will of the Father is. When the Lord cried it, what does he know the will of the Father is for him to do? Go to Calvary, finish out that first coming. Man, when he looks at those guys and he says, all that the Psalms and Moses and the prophets talked about of me is fulfilled, there wasn't one verse missing. He got them all. That lowly, meek, meek and lowly coming, handled it out. Now Israel screwed it up, missed it, but he didn't. When he's uh, hanging on the cross and he says, I thirst, you know why the verses say? Hey, there's a verse over there in Psalms that they got to come and give me vinegar, and i got to get them to do that, so how do I do that? I say I thirst, and what's the guy down there do? <laughs> oh, okay, he's thirsty. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just doing because what did the Lord say? I thirst. When you read all of that, what's he doing? He's crying, Abba, Father. Not my will, but thy will be done. What do we do? Same thing. And Paul, now go back to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we're going to have to pick up here. Well, we got a few more minutes. What am I doing? Let's not give up just yet. we got five more minutes. What's Paul doing here? I beseech you. 
by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm beseeching you from a standpoint of... We didn't finish 2 Corinthians 5, did we? Go back there. Go back. Sorry. you got to finish that verse, those two verses. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5. The relationship that God wants us to have is a love motivation. It's an act of our will. So now let's go do and work and operate and put into the details all of that doctrine that we've just learned and move it forward because we have that wonderful relationship with the Father. Now, verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge. That word judge, it's talking about discernment, thinking. When a judge in a case makes a judgment, that's because he's thought it through. I don't know if you guys follow the Johnny Depp stuff. I always thought it was interesting. Actually, it was very comical. Court TV channel is usually very boring and dry, but not with Johnny on there. It was fun. <laughs> you know, I think about Jack Nicholson's, I'm back. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's it right there. You know, but the, the, the judge will say, okay, my judgment is this. My opinion is this. She, what has she done? She's thought about it. She wrote it. It's a, judging is thinking. How are we going to think about this? By the way, judging angels, how do you think about the angels? Not judging, bossing them around, because we know that's not the, how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works on the basis of service. Uh, and anyway, just help you out there a little bit. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Now, if that can't motivate you to get in and learn the doctrine, think about what he died for. Think about for you. The dirty, low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel that you are, as were as a sinner. You were his enemy. You weren't his friend. You were ungodly. You were without strength. You're an alien on the wrong. You're, you're, you, are, you have no hope. And what, yet, what did he do for you? He commended his love toward us. And that he did what? He died. If that doesn't motivate you enough to go live for him, you got a problem. And that problem sits in your heart. And that's what the doctrine is designed to adjust and to look at. Wherefore, verse 16, henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now, henceforth, know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And there's your identity. Why? Because he loved you and he died for you. And that, that doctrine, that information is designed to constrain you to come over here and to live for him. Not to gain and get because you've already gotten, but to do what? Well, go back to Romans 12, verse number 2. What's, what's coming our way? 12.1, here's the language of grace. 
Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There's the language of grace, and it has nothing to do with God testing you. It has nothing to do with God trying you out to see what you're going to do or not do and where your deficiencies are. That relate, our relationship with him is already secure. But rather, look at verse 12, or verse 2, I'm sorry, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may be, that ye may what? Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, you, you may prove. We come over here and we have the love of Christ constrain us. We have a thought process. We have a motivational issue, a beseechment that comes in, and its goal is that you may prove. See that? Not I'll do the proving, God will do the proving, but you prove it. The challenge in grace is that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Not God. He's already laid it out. It's in the doctrine. It's in your reasonable service. I'm beseeching you to do what? Let all that in, man. Let it all in. Here's who you are. Here's what he did to hear justification, identity, our place in his. Now let's go let that sucker live. That let's let all that stuff live out in your life. Let's get out there. What are you holding it back for? By the way, that's why he's going to say, and, and we'll pick up here next time, I beseech you, therefore. Boy, the therefores. <laughs> Can't miss those. We'll get them next time, okay? Each section has a therefore in it. We talked about that earlier when we introduced the book two years ago. You see, the mo- I, bese- I beseech you. Very intimate, tender manner now. The motivation here isn't so you gain the better or get the worse or God testing you out and trying you out, but rather you come along and based upon the word working in your inner man, the love of Christ, the motivation coming from an understanding, an intelligent understanding of who you are, what he's done for you, who you are, where we're at in history. Now let's go live our lives. And in the details of life, we're going to pull the resource of his word rightly divided out and into our lives, and then we're going to implant it, implement it, put it into play. And man, when we do that, there's your reasonable service. There's you proving what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Follow me? We're just introducing the section. It sits right here, okay? Now, we'll pick up at the third, the fourth word next time. So we got three words. Well, two, okay? But that's where we're at. That's what Paul's doing here. We'll pick up with the therefore and the mercies, and we'll work our way through, because this is the, this, these two verses set everything else okay all right dearly father we thank you for the morning lord we thank you for your word we thank you for the folks here for their desire to be present and to study and to learn and to look into these matters 
regardless of the cost. And I thank them for that. I'm always amazed that anyone would come to hear me. But they don't come to hear me. They come to hear the word. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.